0: welcome to the ginghamsburg podcast after today's message take a second to download the ginghamsburg app it's the best way to find out about and engage with what's happening at ginghamsburg we hope the following message helps you activate your faith and take the next step in your journey with jesus well hello ginghamsburg family it is so good to see you all you all look really good today Today, we're gonna talk about passion, that strong emotion that evokes this energy within us. And I can imagine we all really like to be passionate. We want passion in our relationships. We want passion in our lives. There are things that you do that you're just absolutely passionate about. So I want you to think for a moment about your passion. I've been thinking a lot about what I'm passionate about. In a few months, my youngest daughter, Sarah, is gonna be going off to kindergarten. Now this might sound a little strange to you all, but it's been almost 17 years since Mr. Billups and I have had children and infants and toddlers in our household. And so at the end of a 17 year run, yeah, we've spread it out real far, right? All my kids are gonna be in school. Now, i got to be honest, there's a little bit of weepiness about that. 17 years is a long time, but there's also a lot of excitement as well, (laughs) right? 17 years of what my kids affectionately call mommy days. Uh, Time at Boonshoft and the zoo and hiking and coffee shops and the toy store and the bakery and all kinds of fun activities. 17 years of my life one-on-one with my children. And now... I'm going to be all by myself, (laughs) right? So what am I going to do? What am I passionate about? Well, those of you who follow me on social media, you'll recognize that I really like to hike. I like to be in the woods. I like to get in the woods with the Lord. I mean, it's just awesome to be out there outdoors. And I've hiked more this calendar year than maybe any other year in my adult life. It is awesome. I mean, just this like December, I was in the Hocking Hills for like the fifth time this year and uh, I saw the waterfalls and the water flowing. I I mean, I grew up there. I've never seen it so abundant, so green, so beautiful. I feel like every time I'm out in the woods, it's a new gift from God. But there's still something within me that says there's gotta be more. And so I've been praying, God, what else? What other passion? And that's when God reminded me of something that I put on the shelf. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that Pastor Rachel was a Bible and religion major in college. I mean, of course, I'm a preacher, right? But what you might not realize is I was also, well, at least I started out as an art major. That's right, started out with art. So I had this passion for art. I loved to draw and paint and multimedia and all this kind of stuff. And so I was kind of looking through some of my old sketch pads, like this one from color theory class. And uh, I opened it up a few weeks ago, and this is what I read. This is from September 1st, 1999. Passion. No, no joke. <laughs> That's how it starts. Passion. This is all I can think about. What are my passions? Plural. Do I have more than one? Is life worth living without passion? But I don't have passion. Why live? What are my passions? This world is abundant with thoughts and ideas and objects to have passion for contentment? Why can't I be satisfied? I'm always looking for improvement. Is this a God instilled quality? It seems that I'm the type of person who's never satisfied with what I have. Man, I'd like to say a lot has changed, but it's no, no. (laughs) Like, this is 18-year-old Rachel, and I go on to have some kind of existential crisis that an 18-year-old would have, right? But it's fascinating to me. Like, Here I was trying to figure it all out. I was wrestling with whether to take this class, keep this class. Was I gonna continue to be an art major? Because let me tell you, being a double major and being a runner in college, it just wasn't all jiving. I didn't have enough hours in the day. Fast forward, I dropped color theory class. I shelved my passion. And now there's this desire within me to take my love for hiking and combine it with my passion for drawing because I discovered in color theory class that I have a real passion for drawing landscapes. And so I wanna re-engage in what it means to draw the creation that God has put around me. I wonder, maybe you're in a transition in your life as well where you're trying to say to the Lord, what is it that's in here? What am I supposed to do? And brothers and sisters, it's not just a feeling. It's not just an energy. There's another definition to passion that, well, we'd rather not embrace. We'd like to avoid it at all costs if we could, and that is suffering. Jesus teaches us that passion is all about suffering, that somehow suffering is a bridge from where we are to where God is calling us to be. When we experience suffering, we discover who we are and whose we are. It's in our suffering, that we experience the full meaning of life. So during this season of Lent, these 40 days where we journey with Jesus all the way to the cross, could it be that we give ourselves permission to ask questions? To ask questions of God, to ask questions of the people around us, to ask questions, deep questions of ourselves? Give ourselves permission to look at our whole lives, the good, the bad, and the in-between, and to reflect and say, what was all this for, Lord? Could it point me to some deeper truth, some deeper calling, some greater meaning in my life? Friends, we can take these 40 days, and I believe that this season, these six weeks, can truly transform us from the inside out. We're going to be looking at Jesus' journey from the Gospel of Luke, chapters 23 and 20 or 22 and 23. Jesus is gonna teach us how to embrace suffering, a suffering that transforms. So let's get to it. Let's look at the big picture. Open your Bibles and your Bible apps and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Jesus is readying himself for his passion. This week that we talk about his journey to the cross. And he readies himself with his disciples and guess what he does? He gathers them around the table. That's right, he's hanging out with his life group. And it's there that Jesus begins this journey. We're looking together at Luke chapter 22, verse seven. Church, you with me? Luke tells us, then the day came of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. And he replied, as you enter a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Let's pause right there some of you are like, okay, they're in the city of Jerusalem. It's the Passover, you can imagine. Uh, like scholars say, maybe up to 100,000 extra people come into Jerusalem for Passover in the first century. I mean, that's a lot of extra people. So how are they gonna know who is the dude that's carrying the water jar? I mean, wouldn't there be a lot of dudes carrying water jars? No, because carrying a water jar was a woman's work in the first century. So there's only one dude in the whole city carrying the water jar. Follow him at, to me, follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room? Where may I eat the passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. They prepared the passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In that same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And they began to ask questions among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus's picture. This is the big picture of Jesus's good news. He is giving us a sign act, a physical demonstration of his suffering, what's gonna happen on the cross. He, in this ordinary meal that he would experience year after year after year, the Passover meal, a high Jewish holiday, he's taking this and he is making the meaning new. Something holy is happening here. It's a radical inclusion of a whole new people. Now, how do I get there? Well, let's do a little bit of background here. Jews in the first century were known for their hospitality. They were absolutely known for the hospitality, but there's just a little bit of a catch. When you're a Jew in the first century, you know there are certain foods you can eat and certain foods you can't eat. There were all these dietary laws that were handed down from the book of Leviticus. So we're gonna look at Leviticus chapter 11. In Leviticus 11, God says, tell the Israelites of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you could eat. You may eat any animal that has a split hoof completely divided and that chews the cud. Now, when we were going over the sermon in worship design a couple of weeks ago, Dan Bracken was like, Pastor Rachel, what's cud? I was like, city boy, come on, come on, come on. Anyhow. There are some that only eat cud or that chew, or that only chew cud and only have a split hoof, but also you may not eat them. The camel, though it chews a cud, does not have a split hoof. It is ceremonially unclean to you. Now, the law goes on to list all kinds of birds and animals and fish and all kinds of things that you cannot eat. Some animals were considered clean and some were considered unclean. In verse 47, God says, you must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Now you can imagine other folks that surrounded the Jewish community didn't have the same rules and regulations, didn't have the same beliefs, didn't have the same table manners. So it was just easier to exclude everybody else from the table. Eat with the people who believe and eat like you believe and eat. And when we think about this, It's easy for us to like point fingers and say, well, we don't do that anymore. I mean, except for those of you who are eating keto, right? You just can't eat anything. But for the rest of us, we pretty much eat what we want. Of course we don't exclude people from our table, or do we? Unbeknownst to us, sometimes just by what we do, how we live, we exclude people from our tables. They don't look like us don't live like us, don't vote like we vote, don't go to the same church as we do. And so before we know it, we're just kind of hanging out with people who are just like us. Do you realize it's kind of baked into the classism that we experience here in the United States of America? Anybody ever read anything from Ruby Payne? Bridges out of poverty, some of us, yeah? And then she describes the way in which our different classes kind of even see food and experience food. Those folks who are materially poor, when they see food, they ask a question, is there enough? Understanding of food is about quantity. Is there enough? The middle class, does it taste good? Quality, uh, you know how this is. You know, you bake a casserole, you have warm brownies, and you want that person to say, oh, your brownies were the best brownies ever, right? I mean, it's how it works. For the wealthy, it's about presentation, Is the food plated well? Just with those interesting questions, food is very different. Uh, Suddenly, it is hard to be in relationships with different people who have different assumptions about food. But Jesus is doing something very radical here. Jesus is extending the edges of the table here. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is constantly sharing with us Jesus' dining practices. You may not realize it, but there are seven stories in the gospel of Luke that lead up to this particular story. The first one begins at a banquet at Levi's house. Levi is also known as Matthew, the tax collector. And then Jesus goes to Simon, the Pharisee's house, where a sinful woman shows up and she crashes the entire party. And Jesus feeds the 5,000. Five loaves, two fishes. Mary and Martha get in an argument where Martha is like, this woman needs to help me in the kitchen. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus because she's a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. You know how radical this is? Women are not to sit at the feet of rabbis. And yet Jesus allows Mary to sit at his feet. Jesus goes on to describe a banquet where all the religious are invited and they're like, yeah, I'm too busy. I've got things to do. And Jesus says, so then I'm gonna throw up in the doors and I'm gonna invite the outcasts and those who have always been uninvited and they're gonna get the premium seats at my banquet table. And then Jesus sees a guy named Zacchaeus. Maybe you know the story, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? Tax collector, he's short. Jesus sees him in a tree and he says, I'm going to your house. I'm inviting myself over. And now he's gathered with his disciples around the last supper table. And here at this Passover meal, Jesus is redefining what it looks like, redefining what it means to be at the table. Leonard Sweet says it this way, Jesus didn't care about a holy table as the religious established defined holy. For Jesus, a holy table was one that was open to anyone, a table where all God's children were present. Jesus eats with everybody and it is a problem. It makes the religious uncomfortable. They don't know what to do about it. They're constantly retelling Jesus, you're breaking a rule, you're breaking a rule, you're breaking a rule. What does Jesus do? He just keeps adding leaves to the table. Okay, fine, let me just invite someone else. And the people who get invited, they've been excluded. And it makes the invitation that much more powerful. But we all know what it feels like to be excluded, right? That moment in our lives where we weren't invited to the table. I've shared this story with many of you before. Uh, when I was in high school, my best friend and my little sister and I went over to my grandma's house because it was homecoming and we wanted to show off our outfits. And so we went over to my grandma's house and she was oohing and on over us. And my grandma Ruby was the best. And as we were there, suddenly some of our extended family members started showing up and I was like, oh, that's interesting, didn't know they were coming over. And someone had a cake. Well, it's October, it's my grandma's birthday and suddenly I start putting two to two together and I realized, oh snap, they're having a birthday party for my grandma and we have not been invited. I grab my best friend and I try to get my sister Julie to go with us, but she's not having it. So I just leave her tail there and I go home and I say to my dad, Hey dad, um, there's a situation at grandma's house. They're having a party and I left Julie and I don't think we were invited. So my dad doesn't say a word. He goes and gets his keys for his pickup truck and he goes and gets my sister. And as I watch my dad pick up his keys, I see the pain in his face. Our family wasn't invited. I imagine you all have a moment in your family, maybe in your community, among your friends, the place that you work, where you just weren't invited to the stinking party. And it feels awful. We've all been uninvited. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, not so with you, not so with my followers. Let's extend the edges of our table. Let's invite people to the party. There in that upper room, Jesus is gathered with the disciples. Now, it is not clear how many were there. It doesn't limit, Luke doesn't limit it to the 12. In fact, Luke talks over and over again about how big the disciples were. He sends out the 72. By the time we get to the book of Acts, because Luke and Acts are just, you know, one volume or two volumes, one set, same story. There are 125 people in the upper room. So of course the tax collector and the fishermen and the zealots, they're all there, hodgepodge of first century Judaism but also other men and women, I imagine that room could have been crowded. And so they're all there up there in the upper room, gathered together, the whole wide world. Jesus extending the edges of his table. You know, our picture of the upper room has been way more shaped by Leonardo da Vinci than it has been by scripture. I just need you to know. they're celebrating this Passover meal. The Passover is a sign act, a a demonstration, if you will, almost a play of what happened when God delivered God's people from 400 years of slavery. That meal gathers together families. And as they're gathering together, they're telling the story and it just kind of flows. Maybe you've never really known what happens at a Passover meal. Passover happens the same day of the same month. The 14th day of Nisan, which is a Jewish month. A Jewish calendar is different than the Roman calendar. Every single time. Now, I wanted you to notice in, in Gospel of Luke, he, he says that it's the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Well, actually, the Festival of Unleavened Bread is after the Passover, but Luke kind of smushes the two parties together. This happens in Scripture, right? Just smushes them together, making them kind of one and the same, even though they're not. And so there they are at the Passover meal and they begin with the first course, which is the word of dedication and the first cup of wine. Sorry, you former Baptists, but they drank wine in the first century. And oh, by the way, they have like four cups. It's a lot of wine. I just need you to know it's happening. It is a party up in here. And they're celebrating the fruit of the vine. I'm not not encouraging anybody to drink sweet Jesus, right? But I'm just saying, So there they have the first cup of wine. And then there's the second cup. And then they share the Haggadah, which is the telling of the story. And it begins with a child saying, why is this night different from all other nights? And the story begins to unfold. And the third cup of blessing and the main meal with the lamb and the bitter herbs and the fruit puree and the unleavened bread, all of it part of the story of God's people, all having significance, all playing a role in telling the story. And finally, the fourth cup, the cup of redemption. Brothers and sisters, it's in this regular practice of Passover that Jesus inserts these words, verses 19 and 20, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now situate yourselves with the disciples where they were in that moment. They're thinking, wait a second. This is not part of the story. This is not part of the liturgy, the telling. What do you mean, Jesus? This is my body given for you. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. You see, Jesus is doing something new. This is brand new to the disciples. I mean, we've heard this a time or two in our lifetime, but not the disciples. They're like, what are you doing, Jesus? Jesus is giving them a bigger picture. He's demonstrating what he's getting ready to do. I'm getting ready to sacrifice my life for you and the entirety of creation. I'm extending the edges of the table. I'm inviting everyone. This is radical folks. They didn't know how to eat with other people. They didn't know how to extend the edges of their table. Even in the first century, as Christianity begins to spread, you better believe people have all kinds of questions when it comes to their table manners because how can Jews and non-Jews eat together? Well, Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, real religious guy, has a radical encounter with Jesus, and he tells people over and over and over again, you have a new identity in Christ. Galatians three twenty six. so in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither what? Jew or Gentile, slave or free nor is there male or female, for you are all one in who? Christ Jesus. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We belong to Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Christ, we are made new. The table just got bigger. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. This is what I came to do. This is what the cross is all about. I'm restoring the whole daggone world by extending the edges of my table. Now I want you to notice this. The disciples, they're there. Jesus is painting the bigger picture. And what do they get focused on? Themselves. Verse 22. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table, which is a radical thing for Jesus to say. The Son of Man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And what do the Disciples get hyper-focused on, but verse 23, they began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this? Is it me? Is it you? Who's gonna do this thing? God's there painting a huge picture of the redemption of the world, and they're focused on the details. Let this be a warning to us. Sometimes when we gather together as the body of Christ, whether online or in this room, we can get so focused on the details. We can get focused on who did it, who didn't do it. The negativity and the gossip. Brothers and sisters, do not get caught up in evil's distraction, but get involved in God's action. Let me say that again. Do not get caught up in evil's distraction, but get involved in God's action because evil is always gonna be lurking around every corner trying to distract your tail. It's gonna happen. Don't allow yourself to be sucked in. Instead, pull up a chair. Say that with me. Pull up a chair. I wanna show you something. Go with me uh, to Luke. So we're in Luke 22, go with me to Luke 24. So Jesus begins this journey at the table. Luke 24, he's been resurrected from the dead. And suddenly there's these two dudes who are walking to a town called Emmaus. Luke 24, beginning with verse 13. And so there they are, they're walking along and they're super depressed because they've just experienced everything that's happened in Jerusalem. And they're weary. They're so weary that one of them says, but we had hoped that he would be been the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. How many times do you say that in the last couple of years? <laughs> but I had hoped. Disappointment. And Jesus starts walking with these two dudes in the journey and they don't recognize Jesus. And he begins to explain the scriptures to them. And they're like arguing back and forth. It is a really interesting passage of scripture. And they stop at the town of Emmaus and they, Jesus acts like he's gonna keep going. And they say, no, 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 hang with us. Remember, hospitality, eat dinner with us, stay with us for the night. So they gather around the table. In verse 30, When Jesus was at the table with him, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Don't you love it how scripture like doesn't waste a word? Like how there's an arc right here. Jesus starts at the table and he ends at the table. It is amazing. I get so excited about this stuff, right? Why? Because maybe, just maybe, this is how Jesus intends to make himself present to us today. When we gather around the table, we will experience Jesus in flesh and blood. When we gather with people around tables, we will see Jesus in other people. When we gather around the table, we will experience the presence of God. When two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. So let me ask you a question. What's your dining habits like these days? Like I get COVID caution and all the things. Who you eating with? Who you having coffee with? Who is it in your life that is so isolated, such an outsider that they need an invitation to the family table? Brothers and sisters, we here at Ginghamsburg Our strategy is our homes are the hub of ministry. We come here and we participate online as a launching pad. I mean, this is a resource so that we can be built up so we can go out. When you're in your home, apartment building, mobile trailer, it doesn't matter. That is the center of the mission of Jesus. How you live your life every day matters. Okay, so now I'm gonna just break it down for you. You know, you can come to church week in and week out and still be a really crummy person. Can I get an amen? You can fake it until you try to make it. But when you are living in your home, your neighbors know how you live, right? They know. You gotta be a good neighbor. What would it look like this spring for you to extend the edges of your table in ways that make you a little uncomfortable. Now I was praying about this message and I was thinking about it. And I actually, I was like, just getting ready yesterday. And the Lord was like, hey Rach, uh, why don't you invite a couple of the local pastors to your table in your house? And I was like, oh, and God gave me some names. I'm not gonna say them out loud because I don't wanna like call them out if they say no, but anyhow, I'm gonna invite them over. And this is what I said, I'm telling them myself. I said, Lord, but they don't drink wine, right? Like, come on, Lord, I I can invite those people over to my table. And the Lord said, invite them anyway, because I'm calling you to be a bridge. I'm calling you to be different, to not stay in your own lane, in your own tribe, but actually to live as though the body of Christ is the body of Christ beyond the denominations. Extend the edges of your table. One of my favorite authors who died way too young, Rachel Held Evans put it this way. This is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at the table. Not because they're rich or worthy or good, but because they're hungry. Because they said yes. And there's always room for more. Friends, there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more person to experience the love of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we gather around the communion table, we're pulling up a chair. We're inviting people in, whether you're in this room or on Facebook or YouTube or Dot Church, wherever you are participating, we're opening ourselves up because Jesus eats with everybody. And as we prepare our hearts and whole bodies to receive God's love through communion, we got some things to confess. So I want us to pray this prayer of confession together. That's found on the screen, let's pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Lord God, pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us gathered here and throughout the globe and on these gifts of bread and cup. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be the body of Christ, redeemed, restored, renewed by your blood. Lord Jesus, the world feels like a hot, holy mess. But God, help us to be a people that are claimed by unity and your love so that God, when people encounter us, they say, I don't know what that is, but I want that. I want that joy and that love that's flowing out of that human being. God, may we embody it. We pray this and claim this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I hope you enjoyed today's message. I've got two invitations for you before you go. First, subscribe to our podcast so it shows up in your feed every week. And if today's message inspired you and you'd like more people to hear it, you can give a financial gift through the Ginghamsburg app or online at ginghamsburg.org.